0: A lot of it has to do with the fact that I understand that this is a long season and that we are looking for Aaron Nola to take take down a ton of innings. And I felt confident that we could win this game, very confident. I remain very confident that we could win this game with having Hobie come in and, and get those two hitters out. It was much more based on the confidence that there were other guys who were very capable of getting the Atlanta hitters out. Nola did a tremendous job, and I told him as much when he came off the mound. He knows that he was spectacular. Spectacular tonight.
1: And that, ladies and gentlemen is your manager of your team, your town, your Philadelphia Phillies, Gabe Kapler, explaining what might go down as one of the dumbest opening day decisions in baseball history. What is going on? I'm Russell Joy at Joy on Broad, joined as always by Kyle Scott at Crossing Broad. Kyle, immediate reaction?
2: I have great conviction in my reaction.
1: It's fantastic. And we are joined this morning by Phillies writer, Bob Wankel, host of... Of the new podcast, Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast, part of the Crossing Broad podcast network, which we'll be talking about later. Bob, your immediate reaction?
2: What
0: a shit show! Uh, I. It's the next morning. Uh, I'm a little bit more tame because it's six fifteen in the morning, but it was a disaster—a complete disaster.
1: I I think a disaster is probably a nice way to put it. Um, I'm guessing at this point, everybody who's listening has watched this game and knows uh, exactly what we're talking about. But the decision to pull Aaron Nola with 68 pitches, inexplicable, maybe maybe the best way to put it. Kyle, what were you thinking as you were watching the game? Nola's you know, carving up the uh, opposing Hark, yeah. batters, having no problem, having easy innings. And then out of nowhere, Gabe Kapler comes out.
2: Yeah, I look, I mean, this was a bad decision from the jump. I tweeted, I mean, it, not just me, everybody tweeted at the moment, like, interesting decision here. You know, bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see how this pays off. Like, look, it's, 60, it's 68 pitches. I mean, we're all going to be in agreement on this, so it's really going to be hard to get a good, like, back-and-forth conversation other than us just shouting at Kapler. I get that it's one game. And there was 162 games in a baseball season. And I distinctly remember, uh, I think it was 2005, freaking out about some move Charlie Manuel made with the bullpen. And, you know, and this guy can't coach, he's dumb, he can't manage, and we saw how that worked out. And, you know, there might be another young first-time coach who we were, uh, or I was very hard on, who... That has worked out pretty well. So I want to be clear to people from the get-go. We're not taking away like these grand takeaways here that Ma- uh, Kepler can't manage and all of that. But, you know, we're going to talk about each game and decisions. And, and this could, Bob, you wrote yesterday, this could not have gone worse from him. It was a poor decision. Um, I tweeted that he's already decimated the bullpen, and I got some scorn from that from the likes of, uh, uh, from the likes of Sean Brace and Joe Giglio. Um, Sean's stealing our 610, 632 mantra, uh, pretty much like they take everything else uh, that we do on our website and try and co opt it for theirs. Um, but what my point was, and others have made this point later, perhaps a bit better than I did, was that you have Nola and Arietta are the two sure things you have in your starting rotation. Yes, you have arrested bullpen. Yes, you had nine guys there yesterday. Yes, it's supposed to be your quote unquote strength. But like don't don't have them throw four innings when you don't have to when Nola and Arietta start. No one is sitting here arguing that you should have let Nola throw a hundred pitches and labor, or whatever it's opening day. Got it. It was 68 pitches that he was, by the way, breezing through with one out in the sixth inning. Like, There's just not an argument for taking him out there. It's overmanaging. There's probably a metric somewhere to told. Um, Nola had struggled against Freeman, but he was pitching so well like, so well, with a five-run lead, even a home run, which is what they got, you still have a three-run lead, and you still have your best pitcher in. It just does not make sense. And then later in the game, you know, Hoskins is out, and then, then they wind up needing, you know, need, actually needing runs late. Like, it was just – it was a bad debut. It's, you know, you can – A lot of times managing a baseball game well means just doing all the normal things, and and he did anything but and actively hurt the team in this case, and the phrase overmanaging is a perfectly good one here.
0: I got after him on Twitter last night. You know, I really went in on Kapler uh, on the story that I posted after the game. I went in on him. Um, They are in a position where they perceive their bullpen as the strength. The bullpen was terrible yesterday. I mean he went to four or five different guys, none of them did their job, and I think that 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 needs to be established right and we can talk about small sample sizes it 's one game, and to be fair, I wrote this yesterday. his worst game may be his first game, and from here on out over time, this thing proves out you know to be effective he 's going to maximize their capabilities their potential, all that stuff, but just top to bottom, it was just a completely bizarre game and you talk about low-stress innings, 68 pitches, and he had him hit in the top of the inning. I mean, and that's one other thing that we have to look at, too. I mean, he comes to the plate and hits in the top of the sixth, only to be removed, what, a batter into the bottom of the sixth? I mean, it just made... It made absolutely no sense on that front. The Reese Hoskins thing doesn't bother me as much. You're protecting a three-run lead. He's obviously not a terrific defensive outfielder, and I think that you can kind of excuse him on that front because you would like to think that your bullpen can hold that lead at that point. But the, the Aaron Nola thing makes no sense. And, and one other thing, one other point off of that, if you're going to that April 8th game to check out Jake Arrieta, you better get there on time. Because if Aaron Nola, after a full spring training, got 68 pitches in low-stress innings, what do you think Jake Arrieta's going to get in that first game? 30? 35? I mean, he might be out there for 25 minutes next Sunday. So, you know, that, that would be my word of advice to the fans as well.
2: I kind of li- like thinking about the He-Man showdown. Between Kapler and Arietta, when Kapler marches out to the mound to take him out at fifty-two pitches, and they just sort of look at each other, and there's not like there's this sort of mime thing going on where like Kapler cranes his neck in one direction, and Arietta just mimics him, and like he won't get off the mound. It's just sort of like the mirror thing, and they're like they're like posing and bucking Spider Man and and, Spider Man meme. and pushing their pectorals towards each other and, like, preening their heads and just not saying anything, and this whole thing plays out on the mound. That's the way I see it going well, now. Well, there's a trickle-down effect they're just to that, gonna, too. I mean, there's, a, there's
0: an absolute trickle-down effect to that, because Aaron Knoll, after the game, who you don't really hear anything from that, that is of dissenting opinion— he was asked, you know, how did you feel about being removed from this game? And, and he said, I had plenty of – or I had a lot left in the tank or a little bit left in the tank. And kind of made it clear that he wasn't happy about being taken out of the game. And, you know, I'm sure that the other pitchers were looking at that going, is, is this how we're going to be utilized this season? So, you know, it'll be interesting to see. It's only one game, sure, but there is a little bit of a, an aftermath to that. I think there is a little bit of a trickle-down effect. Well, it's I day do you think one,
2: he Kaplan... already pissed off Nola and O'Dubal?
1: I think – you know, to some extent, he's lucky that Aaron Nola was the guy that was starting the game, because against you know with a veteran pitcher out there making that kind of call, um, you know, to your point about Jake Arietta, Kyle, I know that you're mostly kidding about it, but I I, would no, have got, <laughs> I think I think we would have gotten shades of of John Lackey and Mike Sosha in that playoff game. What was it? Almost ten years ago now, where Lackey screamed at the top of his lungs to Socha, "No, this is mine!" I can't imagine a vet like I kept trying to think last night you know obviously Halliday is a a totally different beast and so is Cliff Lee but just imagine if Charlie Manuel had come out at the same point of a game and pulled one of those two guys now obviously they're much more established in in being workhorses being guys that can go a full nine innings yada 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 but to pull your ace in the first game and like Bob said to allow him to hit you had Atlanta beyond on the ropes you just crushed five runs uh you were in a spot where like the top of the order was getting ready to come back around you could have easily put in a pinch hitter maybe that's the moment that you get Scott Kingery's uh, jitters out there's not a lot of pressure in that situation but instead you know you allow Nola to hit you end the inning i i, I don't get it
2: if it was yeah if it was Arietta i'd like to imagine that the besides my my weird fantastical thing uh fantastical uh it's sort of it would have turned into like a mortal Kombat match like the red text comes down it's like fight and, you know and they start you know like pointing <laughs> fists at each other i don't think it would have ended well i think probably since it's the first game you wouldn't have maybe had a, a total blow up but again it just you know, it doesn't sit well. And Phil's getting, you know, shit on by Ryan Lawrence for his piece about Odubel Herrera yesterday. And, you know, he's not going to put up with sitting on the bench and being a platoon guy and all of that. And, you know, I get the matchups, but, again, like, there's just certain things, you know, you know you still are managing people. And this is the thing that will get lost in the numbers thing and all of that. And it's a, it's an age-old debate. But <laughs> it's day one, and you've already tweaked, you know, you're arguably your best pitcher, and... uh you know, and one of your most productive hitters kind of needlessly. And that's, you know, that's, you know, it's not, it's not a great, it's not a good start, like plain and simple. I think the simple. most
0: difficult thing that, that Kapler is going to have to navigate here is if he's going to use analytics and matchups to drive his decisions with the lineup, then he's got to be consistent because, so one of the things that that was kind of well pointed out late in the game yesterday is that Hector Naris is facing Nick Marcakis. Well, Nick Marcakis owns Hector Naris, right? I think he's 7 of 14 was the number that everyone threw out there. So if you're a matchups-driven manager and you're looking at those numbers, it was pretty clear that that was a terrible matchup for you in that situation. Now, I understand that they had run through their bullpen, uh, you know, to a pretty good extent at that point, but that's a terrible situation to be in. And the numbers kind of indicated that it was going to be a bad outcome for the Phillies. And sure enough, it was a bad outcome. Now, you can't tell me that Odubel Herrera at some point isn't going to see that or see a situation similar to it and say, wait a minute, you use the numbers to bench me on opening day, which, by the way, is an honor. It does mean something to those players. And then you came back and you used those numbers and completely disregarded them in the most high-leverage, critical situation of the game. And... That's what he's going to have to handle. And and I don't know if he can do it. Maybe this locker room loves him. Maybe they're buying into him. But I don't know that. We don't know that at this point. And you can bet your ass that, that Herrera at some point is going to say you used it against me but then when it was even more obvious you didn't use the numbers so what gives and if you have a lack of consistency in that situation the players are going to notice it and they are they're going to be pissed and it's going to create an issue so i'm very interested to see how he juggles these lineups how he juggles these situations and doesn't have 25 guys at the end of the year going what was that
2: and you you brought up the high leverage thing i you know that's immediately where i went when he, you know, when he came out to take Nola out with Freeman, you're like, you know, the one of the the tenets of the sabermetric approach, you know, for those who don't know, is is that, you know, recognizing the high leverage situation in innings six, seven, and eight, where you might want to put in your best reliever or a closer rather than holding them to the ninth inning. And, and that's something, you know, that kind of goes against the grain. You know, you put your best pitcher to close it out. There's It's, a, it's different closing out the ninth inning, all of that. And, you know, the more modern managers will say, well, no, you know, we want to use our big guns and we want to make sure that in this specific situation with the other team's best hitter and men on base, you know, we're doing everything we can to get them out, regardless of what inning that is. But, you know, I think he misjudged as well the fact that the sixth inning with one out with a five run lead was a high leverage situation. Now, in hindsight, it turned out that, you know, those two runs wound up costing him and all of that. But, um, you know, it was almost like he was looking for his first high leverage situation his first uh chance to make a a impact on the game and show his managerial chops and he was a little overly eager to you know act on it is you know
1: it really is all the things that are wrong with with sports and the people who like to you know make fun of managers or coaches for this or even gms to some extent for this isn't a video game this isn't mlb the show and it really felt like the way the capler managed that game is somebody who only has to play a single game right like it, it felt like going online and playing that game where you know that you can use up your entire bullpen make as many moves as you want be as crazy as you want because all you have to do is beat that one person in that one game and there are no further ramifications there are no there's no further fallout fallout you know like i don't think you can underrate the emotional aspect of this especially if you're a professional player this is something that um you know, Phil and I have talked about on the soccer show, Crossing Broad FC, but like, you don't tend to to consider as a fan how upsetting it is for a player to not start in a big match, and in and in this case, like with Adubel Herrera, you know, he has a legitimate reason to be upset about not starting opening day. Uh, Reese Hoskins, I would still argue, has a legitimate reason to be upset. You know, he was forced into the outfield. Obviously, the guy would have much preferred to play first base. You went, went out and got Carlos Santana. And, you know, it's not Reese Hoskins' fault that you decided to make that signing, and now you've got him playing in an outfield spot, which I think he, he's kind of acquitted himself pretty well of. Um, but, you know, a guy like that, it's a shame. You know, he's he might be your most potent offensive weapon at this point. And for you to essentially handicap yourself for the last, what was it, three innings of the game? by pulling him for a defensive sub, you know, he has a reason to be upset. Nola, of course, finally earned being the opening day's starter, and he gets pulled after 68 pitches. Like, there is an emotional aspect to this, and whether or not they like the manager, I think is kind of irrelevant, because in the moment, you're going to be just as pissed as you could ever be at this guy. You have to hope that Kapler is able to kind of pick up the pieces, and if if nothing else, you have to hope that he managed to get the locker room to buy in Prior to this game, so that they'll, you know, continue to maybe give him some credit going forward, because otherwise you're you're in a situation, and this isn't to overreact or anything, but well, you're legitimately I think you looking. A bit. But I mean, like you're looking at a situation where guys are are looking at this as I could have done something to really help this club, and I was yanked out. It's I- an issue.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I think it is one game. And we have to keep that in mind, and we're talking about opening day. And yeah, like he definitely I feel like we probably have just read that as a
0: disclaimer at the top of the show. Like, yeah, like, no, game, we are talking about you know.
2: Yeah, and I kind of did, and I I get what you're saying, Russ. And he definitely tweaked some guys. I mean, I don't know if he probably built up enough goodwill over the first you know six weeks with them that you know the, he hasn't lost them. If they like him, they like him. He hasn't lost them because of you know one decision. You know, but again, this stuff has a cumulative effect. And oh, by the way, you know, it has a cumulative effect on the bullpen and, and kind of bringing this full circle as far as the decision goes. Because uh, I was getting some shit for saying, oh, he decimated the bullpen. You know, my point was. Um, you know, look, you have these two workhorse starters and you want to rely on them when you can. But the other thing is, you know, if you're going to over overmanage you know, over games like this and you're going to, you know, do some things that are unconventional and occasionally give an early hook, whereas an old school manager like Charlie would let a guy go out and throw 130 pitches, you know, you're going to change it up. And, you know, someone said, well, you know, the Dodgers were the first or second most, like had the shortest innings for their starters last year. They did this sort of thing. That's fine. But you're, there's going to be this effect throughout the season on your bullpen, because now you come back, there's not an off day after opening day, they play again tonight, and you know a lot of the guys in the bullpen have already thrown. Now, they can throw them back-to-back days, but... Who, you know, you don't have much behind Nola and Arrieta, so you're, you're going to be using those guys a lot, and if you keep getting in these situations where you're you're willing to yank the starter early and go to your best pitcher and use him in a high-leverage situation all this stuff, like, over the course of a season, there's, there has to be outings where you just allow your starter to go. And again, well, let's not extrapolate too much. I'm sure he will allow, you know, good starts to progress deep into the game and maybe even complete games this year, but... Again, like you just got to be careful. That's another thing you have to consider. Hey, let's let's not blow the bullpen when we got um, when we got Nola out there. So
0: yeah, especially with Nick Pavetta going tonight and then Velasquez going Saturday. I mean, you don't know what you're going to get out of them. They're they're completely they're two totally unknown commodities. So you don't you don't even know what's coming over the next two nights. You know, Anthony uh, Sanfilippo and I were talking about it, saying, "Well, wow, they have nine guys in the bullpen to start the season. That's kind of crazy. That seems excessive." Well, after watching that yesterday,
2: uh, he might, might need 10. 12. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know exactly. So, and one thing though, just about this real quick. Um, I don't know that you're going to get all out mutiny uh, this weekend there in the Phillies locker room. Uh, You know, we look at Kapler. He's the easy target because he did. He mismanaged that game. And no matter how you slice it, but some of those players, I mean, Kapler's kind of taking a bullet for these guys right now because, you know, they have a five, two lead yesterday, top of the eighth inning, right? Reese Hoskins comes out, starts the inning with a double. And, you know, good teams add on in that spot. You kind of felt like the game was starting to slip a little bit. Uh, you know, I think the, the the decision that Kapler made was instantly questionable, and, and it kind of changed the entire vibe and feel of that game. But you know, Hoskins comes up, leads off with a double, and you go, okay, they're, this kind of gives them some some footing again. It kind of sustains them. And then Aaron Altair comes up, doesn't move the runner over. He strikes out. J.P. Crawford, terrible at bat, strikes out. Uh, I think Mike Alfranco walked. And then Andrew Knapp strikes out. And I think the last seven guys, last seven hitters struck out, or seven of the last nine guys struck out late in innings, um, it's terrible. You know, so the Phillies, you get a 5-0 lead, you have your ace on the mound, it's a game you should win, and that's a very easy blanket statement to make. But, you know, a group of guys, a handful of guys in the bullpen didn't do their job yesterday. And the Phillies offense, you know, in the 8th and ninth inning, especially 7th, 8th, and ninth inning, just it was terrible. So, you know, I think that some of those players in there yesterday probably weren't pissed at Kapler. They probably felt bad for him like they let him down. And so I, I think I was as critical as anybody of his performance yesterday. But I do think that you have to keep in mind that there are 25 players in that, that clubhouse and, and there was a manager that didn't have a good day. But some of his players and some of these guys that he's, he's heavily relying upon this season didn't back him up in, in tight spots either. So uh, I just think that that needs to be said as well.
1: Bob, were you surprised that Nap was in over Alfaro?
0: Yeah, sort of. Uh, you know, and we'll see how that plays out. I don't know if, if this is going to be a trend where Nola prefers Nap, or they have some. And again, you don't know what numbers they're looking at specifically. I don't know if that was offensively driven, or if if this is going to be a thing where th- these guys pair up with one another. But I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't I don't think a ton of of Andrew Nap. I think he's he's. A light hitter, um, and I don't think he's particularly good defensively. Yesterday, yesterday he was terrible, um, and it wasn't just the the two errors there late in the game on the pass ball and the throw. I mean, he just the framing, the, the 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 pitch by pitch, the the feel. He doesn't particularly impress me. I think he's an upgrade over Cameron Rupp, and nothing against Cameron Rupp, but. He's, he's not a major league catcher. I have an um,
2: industrial strength trash can outside, which I'm pretty sure serves the same role as Cameron Rupp.
0: Yeah, So, I mean, did they upgrade there? I, I guess, but just sort of because you have to. Um, I, I, again, thought that was a little bit bizarre. I think Jorge Alfaro is your guy. Um, you don't just play him because it's opening day, I, I guess. That doesn't give you the best chance to win. But, um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't particularly understand why he was out there either.
1: I think we've uh we've beat this thing into the ground now things that don't beat things into the ground wedding planning
2: Kyle definitely, definitely should not beat things into the ground yeah so uh you know look some of us are uh of the age and circumstance where this may be something we're thinking about soon a lot of our uh, our demo um uh, did you guys know uh, Bob did you know the average wedding is 35,329 dollars
0: I uh, I did know that, Kyle. Thank you.
2: Did you know in Philadelphia that will run you over forty thousand dollars? Just in just in case I think I'm you're
0: a South Jersey guy,
2: you're in the demo. Yeah, I don't cross um, the bridge yeah. unless I have to. So according to a BuzzFeed article, where the uh, author tried to recreate her parents' wedding in 1974, which was $10,068 in today's dollars, she found that it would have been $47,286. So what if I told you there was a company that could help save couples, millennial couples, perhaps even blogging, teaching couples, uh, 10 to 20% on their overall wedding costs? Uh, That's what we're introducing to Philadelphia today. I do and I will uh, say local company that will help you Uh, get discounts on your big day. I Do and I Will is an innovative company founded by Ardmore Native and St. Joseph's graduate Richard Supley. Uh, They have powerful partnerships with companies such as Vera Wang, Southwest Airlines, Macy's, Yacht Week, in case you want to go big or go home, uh, Visa, Sephora, Brooks Brothers, Jose Bank, Casper, Brilliant Earth, and many, many more. Uh, They pride themselves on working with great companies the The premier companies in the industry to help you save money on your wedding, honeymoon, and you know, I guess if you just want to throw a, a big a big party, um, you can check them out on their free app. I do, and I will. Uh, the website is, I believe, patent pending, coming soon, right, Russell? Yep uh so their goal is to help millennial couples who are facing financial hurdles of starting their life together and saving money they work with these companies i guess uh they kind of round up their buying power and they're able to pass those savings uh back to you um you can so they're going to be at the valley forge convention center on april 15th at the bridal wedding i don't know what it's It's called it's the
1: pennsylvania bridal bridal expo
2: there you go they're going to be there uh definitely check them out if you're going um, find them; they'll have a table, a booth, uh, what have you. Uh, we were going to do a live show from there until I think we all unanimously agreed that it would be super awkward for us to be talking about sports while uh, Brad Dillas are getting ready for the, for their big day and, and shopping for their dresses. And we come by, and, and you know, there's Russ doing his uh, Stewie impersonation along with Gilbert Gottfried.
1: Are you sure you want to get married?
2: Where's Don't Gilbert? get married for the love of God! <laughs> Sorry. There we go. So, uh, we're, we're going to be moving it, uh, T time and date to be announced, we're going to be doing a live podcast in partnership with them, likely at a bar somewhere, and uh, we'll maybe play a newlywed game, uh, for those of you in attendance. So We're,
1: attended, we're in a, a little bit more of an advanced stage, uh, it looks like it'll either be on the 11th or the 12th, they have a location secured, we're just finishing that up, so if you're going to be around the night of the 11th or the 12th, that'll likely be the, the day of the podcast.
2: Non-disclosed location, if you will. Uh, I don't know. We probably could announce that. No, I like things sound more interesting. They really are. Non-disclosed. Okay. Uh, Anyway, so thanks to I Do and I Will for sponsoring us. Um, Guys, before we move on from the fills here, last thing on uh, Kapler Kapler Fest here, the press conference after the game, which, by the way, credit to CSN. I think they stuck on the air for more than an hour with their post-game show, waiting for video to come in of Kapler's press conference which looks like it was held in a municipal courthouse holding cell um full white walls there was nothing behind him besides white walls and a door um they i think they were trying to air it live but again because it was just coming from the office on the road and not a podium i don't think they were able to do that so my guess is You know, this being 2018, they still had to have someone film it and then run it out to a truck and then beam it up to a satellite rather than just streaming it. But, you know, I get it. Anyway, they stayed on the air for over an hour uh, to air uh, footage of this. Definitely past what they were supposed to be on for. They went all the way till 9 o'clock, I believe. Um, It was not good. I always, people say, have said about Trump, especially during the election, that he's like a poor person's idea of a rich person. And I feel like Kapler's press conference was like – it was like a a non-manager's idea of how a manager should handle a tough press conference. Like, you think just saying that you have conviction and believe in your guys and would definitely do it again is the way to go. But in reality, like, that is not what you say in that situation. Um, I think his – Standing up there and saying I had great confidence that Hillner can get those outs and I would do it again and most of the time he will and I have conviction and confidence and absolutely I would do it again and a hundred percent and puffing out his chest and doing his capler thing, that was not that was not good. Uh, he really didn't acknowledge the mistake. Again, I, it's his first press conference. He's definitely you could tell he was a little bit nervous. There was a little bit of cracking in the voice there. He knew he had to come across strong. But rather than sort of fall on the sword and acknowledge it, he, um, you know, he dug his feet in the ground and and you know kind of owned it, you know, owned the decision and tried to pass it off. I didn't think he came off well at all. It had this
0: like Winston Churchill type type of vibe to it. You know, a yeah. like very very strong, very direct thing. Um, it's kind of interesting. Like if you listen to a, you know, if you have a boss. Uh, that speaks very well and they, they speak very sternly and you go, okay, all right, sounds good. And, and then you watch them get into a situation at work where they don't handle it properly and they look completely overmatched. And then they come back into the room and, and they continue to talk the way they did prior to that situation happening. You, you kind of like raise your eyebrow. It almost is like the office in a way. I think the Phillies could do a show that is similar to the office in a baseball clubhouse. I, I almost feel like that that's the element at play here.
2: Man, like, like yeah, like I had great conviction in Hilner and all the guys in the clubhouse were like, "Who sucks?"
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, but you know what? Like in fairness, he was super dominant last year. No, I know, and I, that was, and that, and that was, I think, why they went with the matchup they did. But again, that's something that I think you should have seen in, in like maybe the sixth inning, maybe the seventh inning. It didn't need to happen at the point that it did. It was the. It was the sixth well, it was inning. The sixth inning. Yeah, yeah. It could. Have, it should have happened like in the seventh or. or I, well, we don't want him to go to the eighth. But in the seventh inning, if you want to play matchups, get get one or two relievers in there, and then go to your setup man, and then go to Narison in the ninth. Like, fine, but not not the way that you did it.
2: Yeah, it's, but, it's stupid mean, to do it as early. Yeah, and uh, you know, as far as the press conference goes, I mean, it was less. You know, yes, the decision was bad, but I, I feel like, you know, I feel like him standing up there and just saying, well, "I had confidence. I had conviction." You're right, Churchill. Churchill's is a good way to put it. Um, again, that sounds good, and like we'd all like to think that if we're a major league manager, we would stand up there and say, "I had conviction, and I own this, and I would make this again." Well, yeah, it was wrong, and you could love the guys in the bullpen all you want and have confidence in them. That's great. That doesn't explain a poor, what was obviously a poor decision. And it doesn't acknowledge it either. It would have been nice to see some sort of acknowledgement of, okay, yeah, maybe this wasn't the right thing to do. Now, look, maybe he makes this decision ten times and it works eight. And by the end of the season, we're sitting here saying, okay, you know what? This guy actually does usually pull the right strings and he gets the benefit of the doubt. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I saw a lot of people saying on Twitter after the press conference, like, you know, did you really – like, yeah, that's great you have confidence and conviction in Hilner, but – in that situation, did you have more confidence and conviction in him than you did Aaron Nola, who was mowing him down? Like, that's the question you have really had to ask yourself there. Uh, it's great that you like your bullpen, but you should also like your starters. Otherwise, there's a reason why Hildner's not your starter, and uh, those guys in the bullpen aren't your starters, generally speaking, because they're not as good. It's that simple, and Nola was, you know, arguably at the top of his game. I mean, that that's – you're in – he was right in the throes of what makes him a great pitcher. There was no, there was no signs of him cracking. There was one base runner. It just, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It, it, it did not come across. Uh, it did not come across well. Overall, a, a really terrible day for for Mister for Cap.
1: It's just kind of unfortunate, I think, if nothing else, that he's already being compared to Chip Kelly, and I don't think that's anything that anybody ever wants to be compared to. And no,
2: but you know what? I, I mean, that's a comparison I think we made at some point probably over the winter as well, where it could go in that direction. Here's a new age guy who's who's going to do things radically different. Um, and, you know, it seems from, again, I hate to keep using the word conviction, but he, he seems to have been that way from his opening press conference. And again, one game, we totally get that. But I, there's definitely a way this goes towards Chip Kelly. It could also go towards Doug Peterson. It could go in, in either direction, but... There, there's, there's a distinct uh, Chip Kelly vibe there for sure.
1: It's unfortunate, uh, Kepler. I don't know, I don't know how many people liked him before, but I'm happy to see. If nothing else, I think a lot of the Fire Brett Brown people have now kind of migrated their way over to Fire Gabe Kepler. so that's fine. Uh, we don't need the Phillies to uh, to blow the doors off anybody quite yet. They still look like they're going to have enough things to to give us something to talk about this summer. Um, let's kind of move over to Brett Brown. Big news that came out yesterday is the Phillies medical or the uh, Sixers medical staff, who had previously said there were no broken bones on Joel Embiid and who previously had said there was no concussion, now come out and say actually, uh, Mulligan, please, we've got uh, an orbital bone fracture in Joel Embiid's head, and he has a concussion now. Bob, you and I have coached before. We both know that concussions don't necessarily show themselves immediately. Uh, the eye test would say that the fact that he kept keeling over in pain or dizziness would have, you know, led you to believe that he had a concussion. I think that also could have just been the immense pain and the uh, just discomfortability that comes with an orbital bone fracture. But as a concussion presenting itself after the fact isn't that uh, rare. I would say it's it's actually quite common. But were you guys, were your minds blown by the fact that the medical staff, you know, looks kind of incompetent?
0: Uh, Kyle, you can, you can begin with this one.
2: Um, yeah, I, well, no, I, my mind wasn't blown. I kind of fully expected that he was either going to have a concussion or an orbital Uh, fracture when you're at the hospital and you say not good and then we don't hear anything the rest of the day and you get prayers from Markel Fultz you assume that it's not just a contusion Um, I tweeted and then deleted that he was misdiagnosed Um, you know in hindsight that was probably a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction because um, you know yes they were 0 for 2 on them saying no concussion no break and hey guess what it's a concussion and a break way to go Um, I, I, they don't look good in this situation, but you know, they probably wasn't misdiagnosed because as you said, a concussion can show up later. A small fracture can only show up on a CT scan. Um, my issue with the, the, the Sixers in this regard, or my critique would be, If you know a concussion doesn't show up right away, and I'm always amazed by professional sports concussion protocols, I feel like that taking a knee or randomly keeling over, as we've seen guys do in football a lot, should be one of the symptoms on that checklist. Like, okay, he's following my finger, he's speaking, he remembers what day it is. Uh, Did he pass the walked off the field field or court without keeling over? Uh, No, he did not. We're going to sit him out. Now, to their credit, they didn't send him back out on the floor, But, you know, when you come out and say, you know, no, he passed concussion protocol, um, preliminary x-rays show no break, you know, as an organization, as a PR staff, what the headlines are going to be. Joel Embiid, no concussion, no break. And then the next day when you come out and say, actually, it is, you know, you don't look good. And again, it's, it's another sort of. Like little little bit of pie in the face for Sixers medical staff who who probably didn't do anything wrong. They pro- you know they probably did pass the concussion and there was no break shown. But um, regardless, you know I, 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 this is bad news. Um, someone tweeted and I tend to agree with this. The upshot. The upside is that Embiid probably comes back in a few weeks and gets to wear a mask and and owns the living shit out of the masks. And um, if he has a German Shepherd painted on that little medical mask, uh, then we are going to sell a lot of T-shirts is the way I look at it. But, uh, you know, you already have have Chris Long tweeting, I have a badass mask for you to wear. So I feel like this is, you know, it's fine. It's unfortunate for Joel. Apparently, this is a very painful thing to break your face. Uh, and hopefully it's not real serious and displaced and all of that. And I think we're going to talk to a couple of, uh, of doctors today. We've already had one local hospital reach out to us offering up their doctors, um, you know, because, you know, PR never stops. So we're going to, we're going to talk to a few of those and, uh, and see if we can get some, you know, better takes here. And I'm sure we won't be the only ones, but yeah, it's not the worst injury for an NBA guy to have, but, uh, yeah, it's kind of sucks. I don't know what else to say about it.
0: How do you see this altering the dynamic of of what they do over the next couple of weeks to end the regular season? I mean does this drastically alter their outlook in in any way or um you know is this is this not really that big of a deal in, in your guy's opinion?
1: It's bad like it Rashawn Holmes can tweet out all he wants to stay hashtag stay twenty two yeah. um which i i I get like wanting to be confident and try to put people at ease. But that's that's a self-serving kind of tweet that I, I can't really get behind. Um, there is no way to replace jo- Joel Embiid's defensive efficiency. Their team's defensive rating is, is I believe, top two in the league when he plays. Rudy Gobert in a much more limited role. Uh, he's played, I think, about 30 less games than Embiid has to this point. Um, there's no way to, to replace that defensive efficiency. Amir Johnson's had a couple health things recently. Rashawn Holmes had been lost on the bench. If, if that means that you're going to have to roll out a lineup that night in and night out is going to have some form of like an Ursan Ilyasova, Rashawn Holmes uh, conglomeration at center, that's that's worrisome. Now, the positive is you're only going up against two playoff teams the rest of the way. You still have more talent, but this kind of comes back around to you know one of the other issues that exists on this team that I always get hammered for. I think this is the moment that, that Ben is going to have to be a little bit more assertive offensively in trying to get buckets at him actually, you know, really having to <laughs> – I hate when you laugh. I, um, I, I do think that he's going to have to look to get some points. And he's said in the past that, you know, he knows that he needs to work on his outside shot. He's been working on it. And when the team needs him to take those shots, he'll do it. Well, I think that now is going to have to be that time. You know, they, they've they had an excellent second unit coming in with Marco Bellinelli and Ursan Eliasova, and now Foltz is back. So you're going to have the playmaking abilities uh, that those guys bring to the table. You're going to still be able to have guys who are reliable as shooters. But the problem now is your your entire spacing offensively changes. Uh, the open shots that Cov and JJ have been getting have also been predicated on teams kind of shading uh, help defense into the lane to try to keep Joel out from, you know, receiving on the low block. And without him there, it, it really does change a lot of the spacing. So like it's obvious to say that you're going to miss out on his offensive production and obviously they're not going to be able to replace him defensively. But the the further fallout that can happen for those shooters who have been getting, you know, a lot of open looks and a lot of more comfortable, less contested shots, that's all going to change. Now, luckily it's not a team of just 22-year-olds. This is a team that has gone out and acquired experienced vets. They're going to have to lean on those guys a lot more heavily now.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think though you got to put some context in this. We're we're wrapping up the season in in the in the big picture, the grand scheme of things, this might not be the there's a way this shakes out to be a good thing. Embiid uh, wanted to finish off the season and play in every game and certainly he looked healthy enough to do so. That said, he has way more miles on his body this season than he has ever had in the past. Uh, I don't think it's the worst thing that he's off his feet for the next three or so weeks. Um, what this does, you know, the key is getting home court advantage in the first round. And I think there's still going to well, who knows who I honestly don't know. Cause we haven't seen him without him beat for a long stretch of season. Um, but let's assume they could still do that. We really don't know how the matchups are going to uh, shake out. Everything is so bunched up. This could go in, in any one of a number of directions. So it's really hard to say. You know, this could wind up working out that they get one lower of a seed, but wind up with a better matchup. I mean, there's there's a reasonable possibility. Um, you know, again, we just don't know how it shakes out matchup-wise. But I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to get him off his feet, Um you know, him being a big guy, the coming back, the mask will probably affect him a little bit less just because there's a, you know, a little bit less finesse that he relies on. That said, he is a, you know, he is a big guy who shoots and it would, you know, you, there's a situation where I, I suppose the mask, at least for a little while, can, can make that more difficult for you. So, you know, we just don't know. Um, but I, I don't think as far as basketball injuries go this isn't that bad and getting him beat off his feet for a little while might not prove to be the worst thing in the world Uh, assuming the injury isn't real serious and it's not displaced and he isn't out longer and have pain and and complications and all that stuff you know having having surgery is never is never an optimal solution but uh even though every doctor wants to tear you open and play around
1: there are two points i disagree with you on vehemently so the current, teams need to shoot th- more. No, 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 the Eastern uh, Conference standings portion of this, um, I I don't see any way that you could even look at this remotely as a positive. Uh, Joel's legs maybe are going to be fresher, like that. That's fantastic going into the playoffs. The problem is that Joel said this himself. When he's out for an extended period of time, even if he was sitting out the second half of a back to back, he said that he feels so much better when he's actively involved. Like this is a thing where. I think going down the stretch, he would have preferred to have played in every game for fifteen to twenty minutes just to keep the rhythm going than to sit out, you know, the second half of back to back or to sit out against a you know a lowly Orlando magic squad. So I, I do think it's gonna take him time to reacclimate. It it always has, and he's been very vocal in it and open in admitting that it takes him a bit of time to get back in the flow of things when he's been out for a while. So I, I think that's gonna be somewhat problematic. That's fair. The other,
2: the only thing I would counter that with is he has played more this year. You know, previously he's played a handful of games and then sat a handful of games and then sat and, you know, hasn't been playing basketball for that long in general. He's played what 60, 60 games this season. You know, he's, you should be able to miss a few weeks and, and be in some sort of rhythm when you come back. It's not like he's going out for a truly extended period of time. So I get what you're saying, but you know, he's also only experienced these fragmented chunks of his career, um, so I I'm, so I'm willing to bet he comes back a little bit stronger than previously.
1: Here's the other part that I disagree with you about. Right now, the only thing that separates Cleveland, Philly, and Indiana in the Eastern Conference standings is the Sixers. Um, yeah, the Sixers have a game in hand. No, two games in hand on both of those teams. Two on Indiana, one on Cleveland. But they're in a spot right now where Cleveland is 10, 10 back of first, and the Sixers and Pacers are tied at ten and a half back. And the only thing that I worry about going forward is you are one bad slide away or one poor game against like a Charlotte. If Dwight Howard decides to try to go and get revenge, he had a 30 and 30 game about a week ago. Um, He's the only real dominant inside guy that you're going to go up against outside of Detroit on the fourth, who have Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin, that could present a matchup nightmare for you. Um, And not to mention that on the sixth, you've got Cleveland. Giannis plays you on the final game of the season, um, and they are potentially going to be fighting for their playoff lives. They in you know Milwaukee, you are a bad slide away from falling to fifth. And yeah, it'll probably be a matchup against the Pacers, but you can't underrate how important home f- home court advantage has been for the Sixers this season. They've only lost one game at home since Christmas, so it it really is a big swing. You know the difference between having Embiid and really potentially locking in that that third seed over Cleveland and having him to kind of uh slam the door shut on Cleveland when you play them on the 6th that that part is is likely gone here so i'm i'm thinking that you know barring a cataclysmic drop off Cleveland is probably going to lock in that third seed so now you're essentially fighting Indiana for for fourth and like i said you know home court is something that you just Let me ask you this. Would you
2: prefer a a Sixers-Wizards first round matchup with the Sixers being home, or a Sixers-Pacers matchup with the Sixers on the road?
1: I really don't like the Wizards matchup. Yeah, see, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, if
2: Embiid, hold on, if Embiid six around and you finish third, you know, you may draw the Wizards. Now, you may also draw the Heat. You um, may draw the
1: heat. You may draw the the Bucks are still could. close. They're all separated by only a game. Exactly. The Pacers, but I mean, the there is an could, argument. The Pacers, Pacers could have fallen to six. Yeah, sure. I know what you're saying, but like the Pacers also could have, you know, hit the skids going down the stretch and and could have also been there in six. I, I I want them to have home court regardless of the the matchup. I agree. Now, I would I rather them get the third seed versus the fourth or fifth. Yes, because even if I think that Washington is a worse matchup, that would mean that in the second round you would be playing a depleted Boston team and not this Toronto team that has had the Sixers number all year. So I I don't think you
0: can oversell how important home court is. I'm just taking a look at the standings here real quick and the Raptors are 24 and 13 on the road which is good and the Celtics are 28 and 10 which is awesome. But after that, Cavs, Sixers, Pacers, Wizards, these teams are all either a couple games under 500 right at it or a game or two above it. I mean they're all very ordinary teams on the road whereas if you look at their home numbers they're anywhere between 13 to you know 18 games over 500 so I mean if you're talking about the Sixers and Pacers is is quasi equals then I mean that home that home court advantage is huge I mean regardless of the matchup I mean matchup aside I think that you can't understate uh, or you can't overstate how how important it is
2: even even more so now considering they've lost what one game at home since Christmas um, I mean, that number is probably even more in the Sixers' favor than anybody else at the moment, uh, especially with the young team and all that. I mean, they, they, you do kind of feed off the energy of the crowd there. And that building, um, you know, it's hard to imagine a building in the Eastern Conference or maybe even anywhere that's going to be a better environment than the Sixers in the playoffs. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I'm with you. you got to get the home court advantage. But, um, you know, w- we'll see. It, it, it could prove to not be the worst thing. This is, not, this is suboptimal. Don't get me wrong. I'm just trying to find a silver lining. This isn't Carson. Well, the Carson Wentz thing worked out pretty well, didn't it? But this isn't Carson Wentz going down. You are going to get Embiid back, uh, presumably, if, if nothing goes. Is yeah, I,
1: I yeah, I don't see Rashawn coming in or Amir Johnson coming in and kind of filling that Nick Foles role. Rashawn um, just
2: slinging against Draymond Green in the NBA Finals and winning. You don't see that like, happening?
1: I think, I think Rashawn's a nice player, but he's often out of position defensively, which is how he makes so many of those highlight blocks, because he's got to recover. From being out of position, he's got a. He's been showing off, I think, a little bit more of a diverse offensive game now. He's definitely fleet of foot, um, but I, I certainly don't see him him or you know even Amir. Amir is going to be reliable, but now I worry about how much how much uh, Brett Brown is going to end up leaning on Amir, and he's not a dynamic player. Is he going to be better than the league average as a center? I, I guess potentially he could be. But I'm really expecting them to play more of a smaller, a small ball kind of lineup and have Ursan play the five, which is going to be, you know, interesting to say the least. Um, The Sixers prior to Christmas at home, I think were seven and 10. They're 19 and one since. So yeah, um, you know, not only has it been that they've been really good at home, I think that puts them pretty much on par with, with what Toronto's done this season, at least recently. Toronto's got the best home record in the conference. Sixers are second best in the conference. And if you kind of take that first 17-game stretch where they were under 500 and then you compare, you know, recent stretch, they're they're playing out of their minds at home. It, it is, It's somewhat troubling, but the team has shown that they've got the ability to overcome one number one overall pick being out most of the season. Uh, obviously, Embiid is their most important player, but I think they'll be able to... weather the storm they don't have a tough a tough stretch of games here they've got like we've been talking about they've got two legitimate playoff teams that they're going to be going up against and maybe one or two bad matchups inside they should be able to overcome it so i i guess i guess it's kind of where we're at um what a what a weird way to end the week we were riding high all the way through i would say even wednesday we were riding high and now the crippling weight of philadelphia has uh has come back and and smashed our teams in the orbital bone.
2: I just hope it doesn't it doesn't uh, impact Villanova against Kansas. Ooh.
1: So Nova yeah. actually does have the ability now to kind of you know fix things. They do for my for but my I'm wallet's worried. sake. I hope they don't.
2: I'm worried. Everything that could have gone wrong in the last forty eight hours for the sports teams has. So uh, yeah, now I, I, they need to uh, they need to shake this off here.
1: So that game's what tomorrow night at nine thirty ish, right? Nine something, yeah,
2: whenever the first one ends. Feeling
1: oh no, good. I'm sorry. It's eight eight fifty. Yeah, is there's
2: zero percent chance it tips off at eight fifty.
1: All right, so it'll probably tip off at you know ten. Yep, yeah, probably. Give or take. Uh, I'm, yeah.
2: I'm banking on 10 I'm banking Kyle, on if 10. you
1: had to wager significant money, do you feel confident enough in Nova's ability to uh, to knock off Kansas? If you if you had to like put everything you knock own,
2: off, I, push away, I, sh- I-, I should say. I mean, there wow. were five- they were a five-point favorite. I don't know what the line is now. But, yeah, I mean, they, they should win the game. They are the better team or, or have been the better team all season. They have na- National Player of the Year, uh, Jalen Brunson, which is nice to say, potential lottery pick, and McHale Bridges. Like, this isn't a – you know, this isn't kind of the Nova that you always think, like just a-, a slight tier below the best teams. They should be the better team here. They might have, if not more firepower, certainly the better sort of all-around well-rounded team. Kansas, you know, despite where they're at, they sort of scuffled at points this year. And, um, you know, Bill Self likes to talk about what a what a difficult coaching job this was. Let's see how he does against the man. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think they can win. Depends what sort of odds you're giving me on wagering. You know, do I take them at, you know, the way I just take them at like, you know, uh,
0: still five.
2: Yeah. So I I feel good about it. But, yeah, I'm wagering money if you give me a good return. I don't know if Villanova's giving me a good return, a five point favorite, though.
0: If you do what you do when you look at football lines, you say, "Oh, that's a that's an eagle spread." I mean, that's a Villanova, that's a Villanova line, right? I mean, Kansas blue blood, uh, big powerhouse program, and you're giving Villanova, uh, you know, they're five point favorite in that game. I, I think that's a Villanova line. I'd feel pretty good about that line if I were you.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to think so if you're if you're Joe Public, who's not from either place, and you see the name Kansas versus Villanova, and they both have one seeds, uh, you would have to think again. You know, you have to think a lot more of the public money. And I know early in the week, most of the—about two-thirds of the public bets and money were falling on Kansas. And that line has been—has stuck at five, which, you know, Bob, as you can admit to, you know, probably tells you that the the larger money is coming in on Villanova's side. Um, The Sharps. The Sharps, sharps, yes. So I would uh, feel—I would feel—yeah, I feel good about it. No—and they're—you know, 52% chance to win it all heading into the Final Four um, is, you know— uh, those are odds I will take every single season.
0: You feel pretty comfortable uh, saying the semifinal game there is the is essentially the championship game? I mean, does the winner of Kansas Nova go on no. and win Monday night or no?
2: No, I don't. I mean, I think, yeah, on paper, maybe. Um, I don't know if they play Michigan, how much different that line is. Uh, I actually kind of prefer. Maybe I'm going to uh, rue the day I said this, but I kind of prefer the Kansas matchup. Um, I've seen what John Beeline could do as a coach with those West Virginia teams, um, and they were they are tough. He is a terrific offensive coach, and oh by the way, they actually have a good defense this year too. Um, he he knows how to exploit. Villanova is heavy in ball pressure, over pursuing, forcing you to kind of beat you on the weak side. Um, you know, we used to call it the flying wildcat as a Villanova fan. Now they've clamped down on that. But, you know, they would, they pressure greatly, um, but would occasionally have trouble recovering on an open shooter. Um, again, they've improved leaps and bounds in this regard. But if there's someone who can sort of exploit their tendencies, I think it's John B. Line. So I don't think Michigan's a pushover at all. Um, and look, Loyola, Chicago you know, they're kind of the bigger team. Clearly, they're playing well. If they beat Michigan, I don't think that team is a pushover by any stretch either. Um, You know, again, if you get to the national final, yes, like, yes, would I rather play Loyola Chicago? Of course. And those are that is a matchup I would take 10 times out of 10 in the national championship. But, you know, team gets there. Uh, I actually think they could, you know, give Nova some problems. They do have a little bit of size. Um, Yeah, so I don't think either team is a pushover. I really don't. Michigan worries me. I would be genuinely uh, nervous about Michigan.
0: Yeah, they're red hot, red yep. hot. Yep, kind of like that UConn team from a few years ago. I mean, they were pushed by one player, but I mean, they just rolled right through the conference tournament, right through, right through uh, March Madness. I mean, it was. They kind of have that same vibe. They just look uh, like they're they're kind of like the charm team right now. But uh, Villanova is the best team in San Antonio this weekend, and I think it's going to play out that
1: way. Yeah, let's and, be honest. It's it's. Uh, it's good Friday. We got Saturday tomorrow. We got Easter Sunday. This is going to be a Loyola, Chicago, Sister Jean led squad playing against, you know, Father Rob and Villanova playing, Wildcats. playing against Villanova. I love let's how just, the New York let's Times. Let's just call it
2: what it is. I like, I love how the New York Times felt that they had to be compelled to write a Father Rob story, which is great. Father Rob's a Villanova, you know, a mini institution. Uh, my, my, uh, one of our friends who was actually here yesterday visiting Dana, I was married by Father Rob. Um, Really? Yeah, yeah. Because she used to work for the football or do stuff for the football team, and he was the he was the chaplain for them too. Um, yeah, I, look, I, I think I, I don't even know. I. I the fact that there's kind of less dominance in college basketball these days because you know just because of the way the you know the world is and you know guys leaving after one year for the league and all of that stuff um you don't quite have these powerhouses like you used to even like 10 years ago you had florida uh you had that north carolina team both of which villanova of course ran up against in the tournament um you don't have those teams as much anymore so i think it does allow these hot teams like loyola like uconn you know um Uh, Butler a few years ago was, was probably better than their seed, but it allows these hot teams to get to the, you know, get into the final four, um, South Carolina, certainly, um, they tend to run out of steam when they get there. Um, you know, but I, I think it does allow this phenomenon that said Villanova as a one seed, isn't just sort of, you know, backing their way into it with poor matchups or whatever. I mean, their, their comfort or their region pretty much went all chalk and, and they are by far, um, you know, in 06, when they were a one seed, they were kind of scuffling with the lack of Sumter and the four guard offense. By the time the tournament came around, they had a tough Monmouth one sixteen game early on, Monmouth and then running
0: University, up. That's my school right there. There you I go. Was there that you good go. Game,
2: yeah. Yeah. So was I. So was I. It was. It was. You probably
0: had a better time than I did, but we were just happy to be there.
2: I don't know. It's having a four, four or 6 point game in the second half against a one seed, I wouldn't call it a good time if you're a fan of the one seed. Yeah, um, that's true. But, yeah, they kind of scuffled and, you know, they ran into the buzzsaw that was Florida. This year is entirely different. They are playing their best basketball right now. Their defense is coming together at the right time. Uh, so I, I don't – I'm not real worried. They they have been accelerating into the into the tournament and uh, through the tournament. So I, I, I'm i pretty com- – as confident as you can be right now. Well, I'm
0: of. rooting for them because uh, I believe I have them as my winner in the Crossing Broad uh, March Madness pool. And, Wise uh, man. If- if they win, I believe I win the whole thing, which is good for—I'm uh, not sure what, probably nothing. But um, <laughs> hey, I'm rooting for them for pride. There you go. There
1: you, go. you know what, though, I'm—I'm I'm pretty sure that if Kansas wins, I think I might actually leapfrog everybody from 41st. That's exciting. It's really exciting stuff. I'm not cheering for Kansas, but if—if uh, if Nova loses, my money is safe. So that's—that's that's a little bit exciting. I hate you. Anyway, uh, that that is what we call a hedge, my friend. Uh, here we go, going into this, this fantastic weekend. Hopefully Villanova comes out successful and is able to kind of change the narrative around Philadelphia sports right now. Uh, the Flyers certainly are not doing that. The Sixers are obviously now behind an eight ball. And Gabe Kapler is probably going to pull out who is it, Pavetta going today?
0: Pavetta, who I like. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens.
1: All right. Tonight. So let's see if Nick Pavetta gets out of the third inning today. Vince Velasquez. I'm actually really excited for him to get the late scratch and to be made the closer just because of matchups in Game Three. So that'll be that'll be fun. Bob, if you uh, if you pull a pitcher and send them out to the outfield, is it really are you allowed to put them back in? Uh, could yeah. we ever? Could-
0: yeah. I- that's a terrible idea. Uh,
1: <laughs> could we ever see Gabe Kapler make no. a uh, an absolute insane analytics driven decision yeah. to if send you're gonna, Vince if you're Valex-
0: going to go to the length to protect your pitcher after uh, you know taking him out after sixty eight pitches? There's no way you pull him off the mound, let him play the outfield, and then bring him back in. Couldn't happen.
1: What's the worst that could happen? Uh, he'd probably smash his orbital bone, and then the medical staff would say it was never broken.
2: Or you could anyway. bring in, or you could bring in those uh, local RBI folks and put them in left field and let them shag uh because the no the phillies aren't shagging uh the phillies pitchers aren't shagging fly balls this year
0: and Is they're hiring real? a left-handed batting pac- uh, practice pitcher too yeah um,
2: so that's fun. yeah they're being a little unconventional yeah the, the yeah russ they're not uh story came out yesterday in the athletic it's it's 30 percent off if you subscribe today or as it turns out literally any day because they just keep having the same promo over and over again i think megan montezuma uh tweeted that and it wasn't behind a paywall she just tweets tweeted yeah, that's a screenshot
0: if I'm not mistaken yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> tweeted a screenshot of her entire story um, this is sort of groundbreaking stuff you can get in in the uh, in the athletic but yeah um the um, the phillies are not going to have pitchers shag fly balls um, they are going to let local i guess like high school rbi type players do it um, what is the over under on a player taking one right, like how many balls right in the kisser this year?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's going to happen.
2: At least five, right? Like when I see the home run derby and they said those 12-year-olds out there to catch them and they're all battling, I'm like, how, have you ever tried to catch a batting practice home run? I mean, those things are, those things are spinning. You know, as someone who played baseball for 12 years growing up and, you know, up till the time I was 16 and was, you know, fairly decent at it, you know, I... Those, a ball coming over the fence off a major league bat, even a foul ball, are intimidating. I mean, being out on the field when a guy throws a scorcher in the left, like, I'm surprised guys don't get hurt more in the home run derby. I, I don't know how they make it through the season without at least one of these kids getting, you know, getting bloodied in the face by a ball as they're trying to, you know, they're all fighting over catching it and not paying attention and looking up at the girl in the crowd and, and boom, right in the kisser. Uh, well, let, let's see that'll how this one some, plays out.
1: give us some great content for the site. Uh, by the way, I know his his name was mentioned before uh, very early in the podcast, but, um, you know, I, I guess... What do, we, what do we say to somebody like Ryan Lawrence who implies that the only people who can do a good job covering sports teams is to be plugged in in the locker room? Um, I guess all I would say is uh, I'll be excited to read Bob's write-up, and uh, I know where I can find that.
2: Oh, Russell's <sighs> popular so, sports blog.
1: Yeah, it is a popular one. Bob, do you and have on anything
2: that- there? Well, you can't just put uh, that in My
0: my only my only issue there is that um, you know and, and nothing against him. He's he's a good writer and, and all that stuff and blah blah blah. Um, I don't think that you need access to be good. And there are many different writers trying to accomplish many different things. And I want to try to put an entertaining spin on it. You know, I want to. Try to be somewhat insightful, but I don't want you to read what you could read in the Daily News or in Philly Voice or The Athletic or those other sites. We do something a little bit, you know, it's it's different here. And I don't think that you need access, and I don't think just because you have access that makes you a better writer than somebody that does not have that same access. It's just... I, That, that type of thinking is so, and I think I'll probably let you finish this thought off because you you can probably articulate it better than I can, but that's, that's an antiquated line of thinking. And, um, he wasn't coming at me directly yesterday. He was, it was Phil, I guess, but, um, I think the sentiment kind of holds true in general. Uh, he looked like he was just ready to take a cheap shot because, you know, hey, we have a little bit of color in, in the way that we, we approach things. And if, if that's not for him, that's fine. Um, but just because you get a, a press pass and, and get to eat the big ZD before the game, it, it doesn't make you a better writer. Well, and you
1: know what? Like, I guess let me let me just jump in on this really quick before, you know, Kyle rounds it off. Just because you've had a, a press credential doesn't mean you're necessarily the greatest writer of all time. You know, Bob, I think, does a really nice job. I think Phil had a a well-thought-out piece about Adubo Herrera that really started this firestorm. Um, These guys don't have press credentials for the Phillies. It doesn't mean they can't cover the team, but it does mean that they can get plenty of views, they can get plenty of reads, and people can walk away from their... Their, their work feeling like they've learned something. Um, you know, if every person who got a press credential were necessarily good at their job or fantastic at their job, then all those people who have ever had one would still have a job. And there are plenty of writers out there who are still looking for employment, who have had credentials before, who have been plugged in. And there's a reason that they aren't currently employed for, you know, a variety of reasons. Um, and that's not to take a shot at, at Ryan. But, you know, it's it's at the, the sure? I would say I would say it's it's like the media landscape as a whole like if if having the press credential were really the be all end all these people would never lose their jobs and like yeah there's tenure and everything that exists within the newspaper industry that's led to some of the people that we've you know given a hard time over the years uh, and especially on the show in the last year but you know I, I I think trying to make this a a credential versus you know writing for a website. Uh, argument it's I think it's there's it's just a fallacy yeah it's and, and new it's new age media it's not the same as when you used to have a Zanga account and you would like it's not like having a tumblr you know what I mean like it's it's a it's a new dawn it's it's a dawn of a new age in in media and if we are gonna yeah <laughs> If if you're gonna get yourself caught up in the semantics of of you know what it is to be a credentialed reporter, then I I think you're sadly mistaken. And by the way, it's not like Crossing Broad doesn't have credentialed reporters. Both Kevin and Anthony cover the Sixers and the Flyers as credentialed you know beat writers. So uh, I I don't get the criticism.
0: And I don't want to go any further into this. You know beyond what I'll I'll just say here. The guys that are involved with this site are writing these pieces during their free time, during their downtime. I mean, we're not, contrary to popular belief, we are not sitting in our mother's basements uh, churning out blog posts. Uh, You know, we're we're juggling full-time jobs, and and, and nobody really – I'm not looking for sympathy in that regard, but, you know – we're, I think we do a pretty damn good job considering the circumstances. So when I saw that, it raised my eyebrow. I took offense to it. If, if you would have asked me for a response to that at 3 o'clock yesterday afternoon when it was going down, uh, it probably would have been a much more uh, a harsh response with a little bit more of a strong language. But if that's what he wants to think, and, and people like him want to think that. That's fine. Let, let me know how that's working out. So.
2: Yeah. And uh, look, I I think it's fair to be judged on the same level. I mean, in a lot of cases, I think we're writing on a platform that has a larger reach than a lot of places that people consider a mainstream, especially like local publications and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I mean, the fact that that you, you know, you guys have, you know, Kevin and I, are on this full time, but the fact that you guys are doing other things or Phil is doing other things. I mean, I still, I don't really take that into account when hitting, you know, publish on something. I sure. think you guys no, are absolutely are absolutely. good enough to, to be on the platform as it is. But, you know, as you said before, you know, probably I'm not going to round this off. I'll probably grind it to a nub. Um, I think you touched <laughs> on something good, Russ. It was like, you know, um, there is a lot of semantics as to who makes what, and if people don't know, what we're talking about here is Ryan Lawrence uh, took sort of a weirdly sarcastic cheap shot uh, in response to a Todd Zelecki tweet about, um, you know, Gabe Kapler saying he had this plan the Sido Odubel, and Phil had written this kind of piece saying, hey, get, you know, Enjoy O'Double now because he might not be long for this team. Uh the interesting part was he actually wrote this before O'Double was benched. Uh but his gist was, hey, Kapler has said he's gonna go with different matchups and O'Double's gonna hit sit some games and you know let's see how this sits with him and all of that stuff. I don't think You know, Phil's definitely, if we have a take artist, it's Phil. He would probably admit that. Um, Is it a piece I would have written or fully agree with? No, probably not. But I think there's definitely merit to it, especially after the guy gets benched on opening day and, uh, you know, admits that he's not happy. The manager says, good, I'm glad he's not happy. I mean, that's... Again, not a not a great way to start off a tenure. So I think the piece was was certainly adequate in that regard and and well written and all that. And there was a lot of stats to back up his opinion. Uh, Ryan Lawrence will occasionally do these drive by hits on us. Um, I like Ryan and know him a little bit and have met him on several occasions. And you know I don't have a personal problem with him. you know, I think he's a good guy, and I think he's very good at what he does. He's a good writer, and it's kind of unfortunate he finds himself in this no man's land at the moment. Um, you know, so I'm not—I don't want to take a shot at him, but I do feel like, it, you know, I came back at him on Twitter because he occasionally will do these drive-by swipes at us, and I know, yeah, you know, even just from talking to him directly sometimes that he's sort of, you know reads the site occasionally, but also sort of vaguely hates that, um, you know, we're the sort of thing that is working in this, you know, current media environment uh, because we're a little bit different. We don't do things the old school way and all that. And I think it goes beyond credentials and more to the fact that, you know, we're incisive and sometimes lowbrow and all that stuff, um, I think that's largely a notion that has passed us mostly. I mean, I'm, I'm not above lowbrow. Don't get me wrong, but I think we've progressed as a website anyway. So I don't think his tweet was fair in that regard, but, um, you know, I, it's, it's just a weird, it's a, it's a weird space. But, um, again, the thing that always gets me is when, um, you know, I see tweets like that and from people who treat sports as if they are you know covering nuclear physics or politics or news which by the way has become a kind of a joke in its own right in many regards this is really entertainment reporting and i think sometimes if sports reporters don't acknowledge that you know they can get lost within themselves and take things a little bit too seriously you know we're covering millionaires who are out there um you know performing a leisure product for our enjoyment and you know there's a whole lot of emotions that go into that and we try and channel that in our writing and i think i you know i i get the sense that you know ryan lawrence and many others kind of hate the fact that that our style stands out right now so i I thought his his shot was a little unfair even if even if i you know i didn't fully agree with phil's piece but it was a it was a good it was an opinion piece and by the way no worse than basically you could find a column that's you know, more takey and less research than Phil's piece every day in the Inquirer Daily News. And, you know, I mentioned it last week. Bob Ford has been covering sports forever, who's in press conferences. I believe he's in San Antonio with Villanova right now. Writes a completely baseless, speculative piece about Jay Wright leaving based on nothing. And here's a guy who's considered one of the best at what he does. And it was completely, you know, borderline reckless and stupid and not thought out. Clearly not sourced or didn't speak to anybody who might even have an inkling of what he might be thinking, and this sort of stuff appears in the newspaper every day. And to be, you know, have someone call out, you know, one opinion piece on, hey, you know, these two personalities might not uh, mesh well. I felt like that was a little, that was a little unfair and selective, and trying to further a narrative that, you know, we have to be there to get the story. Like, you know, give me a break. But that's all I got. Ground right. well, to the nub.
1: Ground. That was. That was just so well done. Um, here we are, another week. Uh, yesterday, we went live with the the big announcement, if you've been listening to the podcast and you've known about it for a while, but the uh, Crossing Broad Podcast Network is officially rolled out, available in iTunes. Um, there are a bunch of shows now. Bob and Anthony Sanfilippo are doing a podcast called Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast. Anthony and I are doing a podcast called Snow the Goalie, all based around the Flyers, Kevin Kincaid's It's Always Soccer in Philadelphia podcast is moved under the Crossing Broad umbrella. And Phil, who was just mentioned, and I are hosting a show uh, called Crossing Broad FC, which covers international soccer. So uh, be sure to find those on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh we have a, five, a five-star five review, Kyle. I think it's important that we uh, kind of throw this out here. Yeah, before, before uh, you
2: read that, one question. I got a lot on the podcast network yesterday. Uh, are yeah. these all one podcast, or will they be different? <laughs> they are all separate shows. A few people asked this. So go subscribe to each of them or, you know, whichever ones you want to subscribe to. They will not be uh, amalgamated under this feed. So do that. We will, however, most Fridays uh, have some sort of either, you know, a guest like Bob from one of the other shows... Or uh, potentially a highlights from the Crossing Broad Network sort of show, where we you know take the best of the content that has been churned out over the previous seven days and put it into one uh, listenable hour, uh, edited and produced by by Russell Joy. Hey there, um, how you doing? So that will you know occasionally there will be stuff featured from those shows in here to kind of catch you up on the week or hosts you know like Bob or Phil or um, Anthony coming on, um, but no, go subscribe to those shows separately.
1: All right. Uh, here's our five star review. It's from Babd Babdka B A B uh, T K E. Five star review. First time, long time. My wife and I commute to work together and have been loyal listeners for quite some time. We even own several Crossing Broad T shirts. This is my first time leaving a review, let alone writing a review. I'm thoroughly pleased to. Oh God, I don't like that phrase. Uh, to write a first review, I I edited there with Crossing Broad. Uh, while hey, we wait, do what, miss, what did it say? Said, pop my cherry with uh, crossing nice. broad. We do miss our steady dose of Adam with you guys. The free agent moves, Kyle. Uh, wait, the free agent moves Kyle made serve to strengthen an already five star podcast. I guess that's that's talking about you there, Bob. Oh, hey, that's uh, me. Uh, thanks for letting us be part of the crossing broad process and keep up the five star job. Signed, Amanda and Bob. Nice, big thank you. Wait, was it this Bob? Bob, was that you?
0: I did not write a. Uh, no, I did not do that.
1: Are you dating someone named Amanda?
0: No, I am not actually. Uh,
2: so no.
1: Oh wait, what if Bob? What if Bob has like a second, like has a side piece named Amanda? We're a second life. I like the
2: guys who have like second lives, like those guys who have like secret families. Oh my god, can you? I'm ma- always amazed Kyle, by those people.
1: Kyle, can you imagine? I can't. It's like ha- being being married is one thing, having kids is one thing, but then to then go. And have parallel lives? No thanks. Have a second
0: just, family? How do people do that? Isn't, I, like, isn't having one set of kids hard enough?
1: Yeah, I, unless like one you wife? just get fed up with one and then you like go drive an hour away to the other. I don't get it.
2: Um, yeah, I'm always just, amazed by those situations it. do exist, and I'm always I'm just I'm just fascinated by it. I'm just fascinated. I like one of one of like my hobbies is is trying to decide like which which people or couple couples in our lives are either. Um, Uh, Are either swingers or have second families. Like, sort of just. Oh, my God. You know, just like trying to determine, like, who do we know who might be a swinger or have a second family? Oh, no. That's sort of a favorite pastime of mine. It's it's, really.
1: that is really gross. It has
2: matured from my previous pastime in college and and after school with with friends trying to decide which national sports announcers are like like rampant like rampantly cheat on their okay their families so, on the road. That's <laughs> not good. We used to have those discussions and Most. thank you to the Me, Me Too movement. Some of them have proven themselves out. Like I appreciate that Jim Nance is taking a younger love interest. Um, I just find I find him awkward. And, well, and that's phrase, taking it taking a love interest with Jim Nance makes me all sorts of gross.
1: Yeah, but at least he could tell you about your favorite diner in your hometown. He, so that's he that's certainly that's beautiful. He's and he's going to give his tie, and if if all goes well, he'll be giving his tie to uh, <sighs> who gets the to, tie. I don't know who gets who gets the tie. Divincenzo on Monday. It's
2: got. I mean, Bronson would essentially have to kill somebody in the game to not get the tie. I would think.
1: Uh, what if Mike if uh, Bridges, who I don't want to mispronounce the first name of, what if he has a huge game? Could he get the tie?
2: uh yeah he could it has to be a long tie he's he's a lanky dude
1: he's a tall man all right this has been the crossing broadcast part of the crossing broad podcast network make sure you subscribe to all the other shows follow us on twitter at joy on broad at crossing broad and at bw crossing broad we will talk to you again on monday